surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Welcome to Let's Talk About It with Taylor Nolan. I am your host, and I am joined today by Emma Gray. She is someone who is really talking the talk and walking the freaking walk. She is a senior women's reporter at HuffPost and is host of the Here to Make Friends podcast, which recaps Bachelor. Uh, so hello, Emma. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so excited to be on your pod. I know, me too. I've been looking forward to this. So thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Yeah, so we, we are both in New York and I came out specifically when I did to New York to make sure that I can make your event. And your event was to celebrate the launching of your book. Yes. Oh, I was so excited that you flew in for it. I was so touched. We had a really good time. Yeah. And yeah, somehow yeah. I wrote a book. You I wrote don't know. a freaking book. <laughs> <laughs> An amazing book. It's called The Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance. And I love that on the book, it's uh, on the cover, it's a girl's guide to being a lady, but then over being a lady is joining the resistance. Yeah, we wanted to play off of those old like, etiquette guides. Like, yeah, maybe once you were taught how to be a lady, but we don't need that anymore. Now we just want to teach you how to be involved. Yes, I love it. And in your opening, you had a statement that said that this book is to all the girls who have been, are, and will be brave enough to fight for other girls. And that was so touching. I just <laughs> automatically you. already felt like I was like starting off the book, just joining this group of women, uh, just feeling so empowered already from opening the book. Um, but there's a few different chapters I want to kind of go over with you. But, you know, before kind of introducing this, how did the whole idea even come up for you to write a book? Yeah, so I'm a journalist uh, at HuffPost, and I do cover The Bachelor. But in most <laughs> of my job, what I do is cover the intersection of gender, culture, and politics. I was covering the 2016 presidential election, and I was at the Javits Center where the Clinton campaign was on election night. And I thought, you know, I was going to be with my colleagues writing a story about our nation electing its first woman president. And obviously, we ended up writing a very different story. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed a lot of Clinton supporters streaming out of her public-facing block party who were just full of grief and anger and fear. And then a few months later, I got to cover the Women's March in D.C. and really see firsthand what it looked like when people channel their grief and anger and fear into civic action. And I mm -hmm. found that to be incredibly powerful. And I wanted to create something that could be practical for young women who might be awakened or energized in this moment, but not quite know how to channel that energy. 
Yeah. And it's a lot of energy to channel and to figure out where you put (laughs) this. Um, I remember for me, election night, I was at this music venue and, uh, you know, again, I thought I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to be celebrating, you know, the first female president. And they had these lights above the screen that were like, had different sayings. And just throughout the night, it went from like, yay, to like, shit. (laughs) We were just like, oh, this is not going the way we all thought it would. Um, And there were some riots even in Capitol Hill in Seattle. Um, And it's it's very uh, hopeful and optimistic to know that, you know, especially after reading your book, that there are a lot of ways actually to channel all of this energy that comes up from, you know, politics. Yeah, it's it's difficult and it can be incredibly overwhelming. And I just want people to know that, you know, also regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, a healthy political system is one where everyone's voices are engaged and involved and where everyone is educated and feels like they are part of that system. Mm-hmm. So, I you know, that's, I think, the most important part of this like get involved do what you can and make sure you know what's going on around you because it affects you yeah absolutely and what is are there specific things that you would say you know if someone like reads the title of your book and they're like a girl's guide to joining the resistance like what is the resistance what do you view us to be resisting I see the resistance as something that is somewhat amorphous and kind of ever changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it has necessarily a clear definition. Obviously, the current quote resistance, I think, sprung up in reaction to the election largely. Absolutely. And it was a real awakening moment for a lot of people who saw, oh, we're still at a point where perhaps groups in this country, such as women, people of color, immigrants, Muslims, are still facing certain legislative and cultural threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the most important thing is that everyone should be picking one or two issues that they feel really, really passionately about, regardless of what those issues are, And channeling, as we said before, that energy into, you know, supporting the people. Yeah, into some kind of action, into supporting the people who are already doing the work around these issues. Because although the current resistance is new, the work that is being done around it is not new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good point. And... And in, in your book, you really emphasize that young women are incredibly important to this movement. How so? I mean, I'm on young- board with you. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I know you do. I know, yeah, I've got an ally in you. Um, but I think women as a whole, and especially young women, are often dismissed, belittled, told our voices don't really matter, or that you know, you're too young, you don't have Mm -hmm. the experience, you don't know what you're talking about. And so I wanted this book to really be a call to arms to say, no, your voice matters, your story matters. And you should feel empowered to use the tools in front of you to make a difference in your own community. And that's why I think young women are so essential. And again, there is this long history of young people as a whole and young women specifically being a driving force behind social movements, you know, from Mm -hmm. the young women that I referenced at the beginning of the book who 
were integral in the the labor movement of the early 1900s to, you know, Diane Nash and other women who were organizing around civil rights in the 60s. Like any social movement that you look at throughout our history, there are young people and there are young women who were some of the most important voices behind those movements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I loved even like reading the book in a way was also kind of a history lesson, but like a really empowering one. Like like, a fun one. Yes. Not boring. (laughs) Yes. Like history was not one of my favorite subjects, but the, you know, the stories and everything that are told was just very, very moving. So I appreciate that you included all of that. And especially, you know, talking about young people, like we're seeing that happen now with um, the students in Florida who are speaking up and, you know, even getting criticized in the media by other power figures and politicians for being too young and that they should be focusing on their studies and not doing the kind of work that they're doing, um, that to resist that and push through that. And I mean, to have a bachelor reference here, Becca M, who is, you know, very young, like, faced a lot of obstacles to even just be respected because of her age. Absolutely. And I think, you know, of course, that's sort of like a lighthearted connection, but it's still there. Yeah, There's still that impulse to dismiss someone or to say, you don't have the authority, you don't have the lived experience to speak on this. Mm -hmm. And yet what we're seeing going on in Parkland in Florida is so inspiring. And I really commend these teenagers for using what they have, which is social media, their own voices. Half of these kids can't even vote yet. And yet they are still dominating the national conversation Mm -hmm. around gun control. In a way, you know, we haven't seen that really be able to happen in in years. So Mm -hmm. I think that's super cool. Yeah. And I mean, I think even thinking about the episode that I recorded last week with Alex talking about gun violence and talking about these students, like, we do need to hear their voices. Like young people are so important. And I love that you emphasized this. And it's something I can personally relate to. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners can as well. You know, a lot of the viewers of the show are um, 18 to 24. And I think that's a really specific transitional period in women's lives where you are fighting extra hard in your careers to get that respect. And, you know, especially in the mental health field, something I can relate to and being a woman of color, like, being a young person speaking your voice and trying to be heard can be really difficult, but we, the things that we have to say are important and they do matter and we do need to keep talking. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important that people like you are using the platforms they have to talk about things that really matter and to reach people that might not have access to these conversations otherwise. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I'd like to take a quick break from the show to tell you guys that the FabFitFun Spring Box is finally here. It's amazing. Some of my favorite items in the box are this adorable little clutch. And there's also this amazing massage roller. I just like roll it on my thighs and it feels amazing when they're sore. And there's also this uh, Anderson Lily candle. It smells amazing. And the outside of it is actually super cute. And you guys, these boxes, they have a total retail value of over $350 and you're getting it for only $39.99. I've honestly loved getting these boxes each time. It's like Christmas. You never know what's going to be inside and they give you like great details on how to use the products and you guys get full-size products, so there's no sampling of anything. They're cutting edge products in every category. It's not just beauty. They also don't ever send repeat products. So it's always new stuff. It's always fresh. 
FabFitFun delivers boxes four times a year for just $49.99 a box. You guys can sign up for FabFitFun today to get your spring box. The FabFitFun spring box is in limited supply, and these boxes always sell out. Use my code TALK10 to get $10 off your first box. Go to fabfitfun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. Use promo code TALK10 to get $10 off your first box. That's over $350 for only $39.99. Go to fabfitfun.com and use my code TALK10 to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Now back to the show. One of the things that you did throughout your book was used interviews from young women, from older women, from women of all different backgrounds, uh, march organizers, longtime activists, senators. Um, was there a particular interview that like really stuck out to you or that caused you to really reflect on maybe your personal life or just the uh, system in general? Oh gosh, there were so many brilliant sure. women that I got to speak to for this book. It was incredible. And I just wanted to like hang out with them all the time. Like <laughs> Hey, Elizabeth yes. Warren, just hit me up for some lunch. It's cool. <laughs> uh, but one woman that I adored speaking to, who I'd actually met before, was Lucy McBath, one of the, you know, quote, mothers of the movement. Her son, Jordan Davis, mm-hmm. was shot at a gas station. Um, he was unarmed, young black man, mm-hmm. uh, boy, even. You yeah. know, I'll call him a boy. He was a teenager. And she has channeled that grief in the most incredible and inspiring ways. She is one of the most giving and positive people I've ever met. And she spoke so movingly about the way that we need to lift each other up, the way that she sees gun violence, which is obviously the, the main issue that she speaks about, but intersecting with, you know, anti-racism efforts, intersecting with feminist efforts, intersecting with all of these different political issues. And also... She spoke really beautifully about the need to step back and recharge sometimes. Um, She said that in the years just following Jordan's death, she went through a real identity crisis. If I'm not Jordan's mother, who am I, she said. And so she pushed herself, pushed herself, and became this incredible activist, but never took the time to recharge her internal batteries. Mm -hmm. And she almost completely burnt out. So she decided to step back and take a couple months to herself to step back from the public eye and ended up coming up with all of these ideas that she said she probably wouldn't have come up with if she hadn't allowed herself that space. And I thought that was a really good lesson. Yeah. I mean, I honestly got goosebumps listening to you talk about that. And, um, you know, I mean, essentially what she's speaking to is self-care and you have a section on this as well. And I did a episode on it a while back, but that chapter actually, um, I had written down a quote from her. So it's really funny that you brought her up as the person um, in that interview. But this chapter on intersectionality, I think is super important to discuss today. The quote that I had written down from her was she said, you cannot focus on one issue without the intersectionality of all the issues. So I'd like to kind of invite you to have this conversation with me now on intersectionality because I don't think it's something that is um, so mainstream. I don't think it's something that like everyone knows about. And I think some people may talk about it, but then kind of be like, wait, but what is that really? Yeah, of course. And I think that, you know, I, I find myself 
saying over and over again, I sort of wish there was a word that felt a little less clunky or a little mm-hmm. less academic. Yeah. Because I think people hear that word and they're like, oh, that's not for me. I'm not a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, intersectionality affects all of us because all that it really means is that we each have different pieces of identities that make up our lived experiences. Yeah, we're not so, just one simple exactly. thing. We're very complex. Right. You know, I'm a woman and there are a lot of things that you and I can connect with over that shared gender identity and the way we walk about the world. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm a white woman mm-hmm. and I'm Jewish and I'm straight and I'm cisgender. So all of those things intersect with each other to create my own story and my experiences. And it's important to keep in mind that you know, for all of us, that your own experiences aren't generalizable necessarily to everyone. Yeah. And also that when we are, you know, trying to advocate for women, we can't separate that fight from advocating for, you know, people of color because they're women of color (laughs) or we can't separate that from, from advocating for queer people because there's a lot of queer women. So all of these things interact with each other. And that's really what Lucy was speaking to. Mm -hmm. And I think the point she made so beautifully is that if we're looking for real lasting solutions to a lot of these big issues, rather than just band-aids, we're going to need to address the whole. Yeah, it's super powerful. And I think it's, it, you're right, it sounds like this really big thing, but when you really take a step back, that's just looking at problems as a whole. It's looking at people as a whole. And I think it's something that we kind of do naturally, but sometimes when it's uncomfortable, we have to like really intentionally do. Um, something I learned from your book, I didn't realize that this term had only came up in like the 1980s in, in order to like address how laws against discrimination were being passed um, in terms of women uh, in the workforce, but then also incorporating that with women of color. Just very interesting for me to reflect on like, oh, only since like the 1980s, this was like a thing. Okay. <laughs> Right. And language is so powerful. Once we have a word to name the thing, Mm -hmm. then we can point to it. And it makes it so much easier to talk about because we can identify that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And you talk a lot about like pushing white feminists to consider ways that race and gender interact. And I think you did a beautiful job of that, even just writing the book as a, you know, white, cisgender, straight female, including lots of different voices from all kinds of different women with different backgrounds. Um, and, and what would you say, I mean, when thinking about feminism and like white feminism, you know, we did an episode on white privilege. Uh, what, what does it mean for you to look at feminism as a whole and, and to, you know, step outside of white feminism? Yeah, it's been, you know, that was so important to me in writing the book. I think it was the first thing I brought up to my editor is that if I can't get a critical mass of women whose identities are different from mine to talk to me that I don't even want to move forward with this. It was so important to me not to center my own story and my own experiences too much. Although I did want to, you know, include pieces of myself in the book. Yeah. And I think in any person's activism, we need to be stepping outside of ourselves. And one of the most important lessons that I took away just from interviewing activists of color and also white woman activists was that as white women, 
we don't always need to lead the conversation. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Sophie Flicker, who is one of the national organizers of the Women's March, she's a white woman and obviously organizes alongside women of color every day. And she said to me, you know, as white women, we so often worry. And and I think this goes for any kind of allyship. You worry, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to kind of step in it? You know, I'm going to do this wrong. Mm -hmm. And she said, the beautiful thing is that you actually don't have to worry about that because you don't have to say the thing. You just have to show up and listen. And it takes the pressure off of you. And I thought that was such a great way to put it. Like, we don't always need to be leading the charge because there are people who are already doing that. And you can just show up and be like, hey, I'm here for you. You tell me what you what you need and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And then when I go out and speak to other white women, that's when I'm going to lead that conversation and use my story and use my access to amplify the needs of other people. Yeah. And, and I think I would apply that as well to, you know, talking to people with different sexualities and just any kind of different background from yourself. But I think... Or men, mm -hmm. talking to men. Exactly. And that's something makes me reflect on the white privilege episode where it's like, yeah, you don't always have to say the right thing. You don't even have to lead the conversation, but showing up and asking questions and like trying to really hear someone else's story and accepting it for what it is, like not trying to fight that, you know, and, and try to fit it into your box of what you think it should be, but really actually just listening to what the person is saying and what their story is and learning exactly. how you can better help. Yeah. I'd like to take one more quick break from the show to talk to you guys about Flex. Fun fact, did you know that tampons were invented by a man in the 1930s? I learned this recently, and I think because we avoid talking about topics like this, nothing's really getting invented. So let's talk about it. My period is pretty light, which meant that I actually hate using tampons because they're just so uncomfortable. And I recently started looking into different kinds of menstrual cups, and I found Flex. I'm totally obsessed with it, and I just had to share it with you guys. Flex is a menstrual disc invented by women for women. It's totally body safe and is not linked to toxic shock syndrome. Plus, it's wearable for up to 12 hours, so you only have to change it twice per day, even if you have a heavy period. It's so comfortable, you can't feel it at all while you're wearing it, and it actually has helped relieve my cramps. I'm a huge advocate in finding... I'm a huge advocate in finding a product that works for you. So I partnered with them to give you a three-month trial for only $12 plus shipping. Just go to IHateTampons.com and use my code TAYLOR to try Flex for three months for only $12. Now back to the show. Speaking of stories, uh, (laughs) your chapter five, you talk about how our stories matter. And even though that sounds a little trite, but it's very true. Uh, And you actually, this was a section where you were personal and opened up about uh, your struggle or experiences with having generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, Do you want to share a little bit about kind of what that was like for you? I believe you said it was 2010 that that you were diagnosed with that. Yes. Yes. I... 2010 was when I got the diagnosis. It's when I really like went into therapy in mm-hmm. earnest. And I realized that I certainly struggled with my anxiety for my entire life. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I decided, oh, I can ask for help with yeah. this thing that has always been present. That you don't have to I do it all on to. your own. Exactly. And I think that a lot of women, there's such a stigma 
especially in, in a specific way, I think, for women, because there is this history of, you know, the trope yes. of the hysterical woman, the crazy woman. There's yes. a lot of fear and anxiety around even addressing having any sort of mental health issue. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be labeled as crazy. Yeah. And yet the thing that has made me like the highest functioning and able to deal with my emotions and my life in the most productive way has been reaching out that hand and saying, I need help and I'm going to write about my anxiety and I'm going to sit in therapy and I'm going to be really open with other people about that struggle. And it's been so liberating. Yeah. You're like, you're speaking up, you're owning your story and sharing it. And I think that is the most powerful part of, you know, helping to reduce the stigma around mental health. Because like you said, it's not just also that women are, you know, scared to speak up because there's this history, but then it's also this, you know, really crappy cycle where women are more often being diagnosed and women are more often speaking up than men to where then, you know, there's this whole other flip of the table where, I don't know, flip of the table is a saying, but I'm making it one, (laughs) um, (laughs) where, you know, men don't speak up and come up with these issues and where, you know, speaking up and saying that you're a woman who's struggling with any kind of, you know, emotion or mental illness that you are very much labeled and, and pinned as this specific thing as if it wasn't already hard enough as women like to speak up and have, feel like our voices matter about something. This can sometimes feel like it's devaluing our stories. Right. Absolutely. And I think that the most important thing about telling our stories is that when we do that, we give other people permission to tell mm-hmm. their stories. And I saw that when I started writing about my struggle with anxiety, I got so many emails and messages from people who related and wanted to talk about therapy. I'm sure, you know, I know that you get so many messages every mm-hmm. time you do an episode from your listeners and you are opening up that space as well. And then we also see this within activism. You know, look at the Me Too movement. It is literally a movement built around storytelling and someone saying Me Too, which gives space to other people, men, women, people of all gender identities to step up and say Me Too as well. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful thing that's happening. And you're right. I do get a lot of letters on, you know, different kind of mental illnesses. And I have one here on anxiety that I would love to share with you. Yeah. So this listener says... I just want to let you know how much I appreciate you having a podcast that discusses mental health. I feel like it's still incredibly taboo and not taken seriously. My father tells me that my anxiety is all in my head when I just recently got diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. It made me feel ashamed that I need a medication in order to not be a complete mess. But my friends always say, you wouldn't feel bad for treating a physical illness, so don't feel bad for treating a mental illness. Your podcast is really helping me come to terms with my generalized anxiety disorder. I've been looking for a good therapist in my area and even asked my general practitioner for recommendations, but that didn't lead anywhere. Do you have any tips on how to find a good therapist? Oh, I love this letter. Yeah, me too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) First, I think... It's amazing that she's already pointing out or that, that at least that she has a friend who can support her and remind her that if we're going to treat physical illnesses, like it's no big deal, you know, that it's totally acceptable and supported, then we should feel the same way about mental illness. 
Love that. Also for, you know, finding a good therapist, a website that I've used frequently and that I've shared a few times is psychologytoday.com. Um, I find that one to be super easy to use. Uh, Emma, how did you go about finding a therapist or even coming to terms with your anxiety and sharing that with people? Yeah, the first time I saw a therapist, I was in university. So I just went to my campus you know, clinic Mm -hmm. and was set up with someone. And then I moved to New York and sort of stopped treatment for a while and then realized, no, still got a lot of work to do. Got to go back to this. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough, actually, my aunt is uh, a therapist in Boston and she asked a colleague of hers in New York to recommend a list of people. And Mm so I went through that list called the ones that were taking new patients and just, you know, sort of tried, tried them out and found one that I really, really loved. And so I would say that that is really helpful. Like even if one therapist that you reach out to isn't taking new patients or their schedule doesn't work, it can be helpful to ask one mental health professional to refer you to other people Mm -hmm. in their network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if a therapist, if you reach out to someone and they say that they're not accepting clients, I mean, usually they should be providing you with references to other clinicians that might be able to see you. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if you'd be open to sharing kind of how you knew that you, that you wanted to go to therapy or that you needed to, you know, what, what kinds of things were coming up for you? Sure. I think originally, so I was a a camp counselor for many years Mm -hmm. and I was in one of my last summers working like towards the end of college, I was in a leadership position and I just found myself getting extremely overwhelmed when people would be asking me a bunch of questions. I just wasn't quite able to process everything and organize those things. And I would get very overwhelmed to the point that I would feel my body start to kind of shut down. And at the end of that summer, I sort of thought this, I shouldn't have to live with this. I shouldn't be responding to stressors in this way. I I need better coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So that was the first impetus. And then when I moved to New York, it was actually, you know, it was actually dating Mm -hmm. that made me super anxious. And I sort of recognized a pattern in myself where I would have an intense amount of anxiety, you know, if someone wouldn't text me back, if people were bad at communicating and like, guess what? Dudes in New York, terrible (laughs) at communication. Yeah. I mean, dudes everywhere, honestly, sometimes. (laughs) I just had a conversation with my girlfriend in Germany (laughs) about getting that anxiety because this is the first day that they haven't talked in like since the weekend. (laughs) And it was, it was that anxiety coming up. Mm -hmm. So, so common. And I think, you know, of course, a little bit of that anxiety is normal, but I recognized in myself that it was almost causing this instinct to push someone to reject me just so that I could relieve that physical anxiety. And I had a moment where I thought, I don't want to my anxiety to be making decisions for me. Yes. That's... I need to be in control. Mm-hmm. You need to be in the driver's seat. We use yes, that exactly. metaphor here a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly it. And and I knew that in therapy, I would probably be able to find the tools mm-hmm. to allow me to take the driver's seat. And it's it's been, you know, I've been in therapy pretty regularly for years now with the same mm-hmm. therapist. I she probably knows me 
uh, you know, better than anyone besides maybe my own mother. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredibly uh, productive relationship and it's really helped me manage my own anxiety. So I always say that, like, I think everyone should be in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's never like means to an end, I guess. Like there isn't ever, I think, in my opinion, a like, okay, you're cured. No need to come to therapy anymore. Like for me, I feel like there's always things that we're going to be experiencing and new things that are going to come up in our lives that are going to cause these different emotional disturbances, like an election, for example, um, yeah. you know, where <laughs> it might, it might cause you to, you know, take a step back into the therapy room but um oh yeah my roommate is a therapist she's a licensed social worker and Mm -hmm. she would tell me like right after the election just Mm -hmm. like she got all of these new clients and they were just coming to cope with the feelings that those you know national Mm -hmm. events caused yeah so it's, it it's a very real thing. Yeah. Um, I believe the APA even put out something when that happened just about, you know, brushing up on like, and even with travel bans and all that stuff coming up with, you know, getting yourself culturally educated and politically educated um, in order to work with clients because there has definitely been an increase in people seeking help because it's just hard to make sense of the world right now. But I want to get slightly clinical here for a second and differentiate between, like you mentioned earlier, like you could tell that some of the anxiety was just like normal anxiety, but then you reached a point where you're like, okay, wait, this is a problem. And there's a few different ways you can come to that realization. But specifically, I want to, do you know what, what the DSM is? I do. Okay, wonderful. So some people do not know what the DSM is. It's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which sounds scary, but it's essentially just how therapists guide to diagnose different disorders. Um, so if you really want like a clear cut definition for like, you know, what a d- diagnosis looks like clinically, that's a book you can check out. And so for generalized anxiety disorder, because anxiety is something, you know, so prevalent, it's a normal feeling that we all get, but then sometimes it becomes a little excessive and that's when it becomes a disorder. In the DSM, it's defined as just having excessive anxiety and worry that's difficult to control. It occurs more days than not for at least six months. So it sounded like for you, you know, you realized this was kind of ongoing in your life. And that it's followed with at least three of these symptoms, restlessness, easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating, irritability, muscle tension, sleep disturbance. And honestly, I think to a certain extent, all of those things can be um, experienced in like one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if those are all happening, you know, for more days than not for six months, then there definitely might be something going on. And, um, you know, I think it's, super empowering. And I very much appreciate you opening up about that, not only in the book, but also in the article you wrote and here with me, because it can be very uncomfortable and lead to a vulnerability hangover, sharing this kind of stuff. Yes. And well, you you know all about that from being on a show that literally forced you to be vulnerable on a very big platform. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There there were a lot of things that came from that. <laughs> That's like a month-long vulnerability hangover. <laughs> absolutely. Well, more than that, there, there's the filming years, and then the... Years. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's the watching it and then there's the after watching it and then there's the next season that just triggers all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's 
it's really interesting that you incorporated this anxiety piece in talking about joining the resistance because I think, again, our mental health is something we can like push down and just say, you know, nope, we're fine. We're strong women. Like we don't need that help. Like we're good, you know, but it, it doesn't make you weak to say that you're struggling. And it, I think just really empowering for us as women and also for men to join the conversation on things that we are struggling with. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you also for opening up this conversation. I completely agree with everything you've said. Yeah. And You also kind of dig into, you know, in your part two section, which is more of the how to resist like a girl, talk about lady clubs and covens and that this is where the real magic and the the real work happens. And that's kind of how I feel even with just the sharing your story part, you know, that your story matters, that that's a part of of the lady clubs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think women-only spaces can be incredibly, incredibly vital. Not to say, like, don't include men in Mm -hmm. any of this. You know, I love talking to men. They're great. (laughs) But, (laughs) But that being said, there is something really special about being surrounded by other women, having a certain level of common understanding of experience there. And often... You know, women are conditioned to sort of modulate their behavior around the comfort of other people, especially when those Absolutely. people are male. And and we know from the research that so often women are less likely to speak mm-hmm. up. Men often talk over women. Women's ideas are not received necessarily uh, in the same way or given the same yeah. weight when there are men there. And so there is a real value in creating spaces where you sort of take that out of out of the Mm -hmm. equation yeah there have been many times where I can relate to that experience of being you know even one of them actually was with uh Colin who was on the white privilege episode and Derek of the two of them talking and I was trying to you know insert myself and be assertive and speak up and eventually I had to say hey guys I'm trying to also share here you know, and be like, my, my opinion here matters too. And it, I know that for them, what I say is valued and it, and it is important, but it definitely takes a different kind of place. And when you're surrounded with just males. Exactly. And it's not even a conscious thing. It's not to say like these men, you know, don't care about the women around Mm -hmm. them and don't want to hear their stories. Obviously Derek and Colin, value you and value what you have to say, as you said. And yet we're sort of programmed and socialized in ways Mm -hmm. that are counter to that. Absolutely. And I think you're right. There is this real power in being around other women. And while being on The Bachelor definitely has its own set of problems in relation to women friendships, but it also allows this weird bonding, like really strong bonding to happen between women. And I had never been in a sorority before or anything like that. So it was really interesting for me to see how, you know, the difference was in that setting to just have all that lady love. I mean, that is my favorite part about watching The Bachelor, honestly. (laughs) I'm always saying, like, the real love stories are between the women. Like, 
Kendall mm-hmm. and Jacqueline's relationship is probably my favorite relationship yes. of this season on yes. The Bachelor. <laughs> they are wonderful, wonderful ladies. And how, I mean, are there like specific like lady clubs? Like how would you, I mean, not everyone's going to go on The Bachelor and develop this, uh, you know, little <laughs> friend group. But I mean, how would you suggest women go about like finding their lady coven? Yeah, so... It obviously depends what stage of life you're in. If you live in one of kind of a, a big major city there's and you're in the workforce or you're some sort of independent contractor, there probably is a women's co-working space or a social club that exists. I'm a member of The Wing, which exists in New York right now, but is also expanding to D.C. and L.A. Awesome. Um, if you're in school... You probably can find some sort of feminist club or some sort of women-focused space that already exists that you can mm-hmm. join. But you also can just create your own. Yeah. You know, I have a really good friend who just sort of gathered a bunch of women into her living room right after the election, and it's turned into this monthly thing, and we just meet in her living room, and it's really awesome. So you you can do this on your own without that existing structure and you don't need like a whole lot of money or anything to do it. You just need a physical space and to put out the word yeah. to women. <laughs> Come I over. love that. I love that. Um, and I think again that that woman to woman support, you know, women supporting other women can be so powerful, especially in feeling comfortable to share our stories and plays such a huge role in our mental health. Um, you know, social support is a huge part of treatment and just healthy self-care and uh, mental health. Um, but another kind of the last section of the book I want to touch on here, you wrote about self-care and your like subtitle for the chapter really cracked me up. Uh, self-care, AKA how to avoid losing your mind while changing the world. (laughs) (laughs) It can be really exhausting to be tuning in just to the news right Mm -hmm. now. There's so much going on. We're sort of being assaulted by a ton of information 24 hours a day. And while I do think that it's incredibly vital for us to be constantly educating ourselves and paying attention, we also have to give ourselves permission to step back sometimes and say, I'm going to log off Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and I'm you know, going to turn my phone off and turn the TV off or turn the news off and do something that brings me genuine yeah. joy that kind of recharges that internal yeah, battery. Absolutely. And I know that that's something you talk about on the podcast Yeah, and even in our last episode, you know, with gun violence and mental health, like keeping up with the, these mass shootings when they happen, like give yourself a break. Like you're not a terrible person for not following along, but like sometimes it can bring on symptoms for you and it can feel like you're experiencing other people's traumas. And it's very, very, very beneficial for us to take those breaks to unplug and focus on self-care. And in some ways, self-care can be related to being plugged in like to Netflix, but it just, it depends on, on what works for you. Um, what, what would you say are kind of your self-care go-tos? I know we've talked about therapy and therapy is definitely one of them. (laughs) Uh, but I'd also say yoga. Yoga is a huge one for me because it just forces me to pay attention to my breath and my body and not get caught in a cycle of thoughts in my head, which is my normal state (laughs) of the day. Uh, and also like watching yeah. Netflix. Like I love watching mm-hmm. a good TV show, just going down a rabbit hole, 
getting out of my Same. own head and and escaping into someone That's else's exactly story. What I say I'm like I'm taking in someone else's <laughs> life and I'm just like really yeah. I, I am in a different time period. I'm in a different life. Like I'm just being transported. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> exactly. Like there's a reason that I used to go to sleep to like the Harry Potter books <laughs> on tape. Like it's just nice to have a narrative that is not your own. Like, yes. Your and and I love that you brought up yoga and this sort of meditating. Again, the girlfriend in Germany that I was just talking about earlier, our conversation uh, is coming up for me here as well, where, you know, she's having these just anxious thoughts about reaching out to this guy. And, you know, did she text him? Did she not text him? Did she text him? Did she not text him? And I was like, well, you know, this is a good opportunity for you to challenge yourself with this anxiety and, and to really like sit with that and she's like why would I want to do that (laughs) she's like that sounds terrible and like I don't why would I want to do that (laughs) and I'm like well you know to move through it like sometimes that can be good for you to you know think about like why this is coming up and just like breathing through it and being kind to yourself in that you know we did an episode on self-compassion and ever since then I mean I had always known what self-compassion was but really digging deep into it it's like almost every day I'm battling these thoughts where it's like, yep, be compassionate with yourself, be compassionate with yourself, like talking about sharing your stories and, you know, struggling with mental illness as a woman, like be kind to yourself. And it is a constant Mm -hmm. challenge. And it's certainly something that I've learned through yoga. Often the teacher will ask you, you know, pick a word, set an intention at the beginning of class and just sort of repeat that to yourself even when you're, you know, physically struggling. And often what I pick is like self-love or kindness, like just mm-hmm. be kind to yourself and repeating that while you're doing kind of these physically challenging poses. I don't know, for some reason, it like settles into your body more effectively. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. She was actually, my girlfriend was actually going to a yoga class as well. So I was like, yes, yeah, think on it in yoga. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have not gone to yoga, but I do occasionally do some in, in whatever space I'm in. Have you been able to identify any areas of self-care that perhaps were more unhealthy or that were actually like self-indulgence and not self-care? Um, I think it's a delicate balance. I think there's a tendency... Yeah. Because self-care has become this buzzword, we now are seeing sort of the consumerist end of it where companies are Mm -hmm. kind of jumping on it and being like, just buy this thing. It's self-care. And I feel like that you kind of have to be aware of because just sort of spending your money in various places, maybe buying a specific thing will be helpful to you. But there's a lot that, you know... We're, we're sort of told like, if you'll just get this one product, then it will solve your problem yeah. with X. And that's usually yep. false. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> and in that chapter, you also had a bunch of interviews from, uh, you know, different activists and whatnot sharing their self-care and that I found was really moving and really nice to read. Was there a specific one that stuck out to you or that was your favorite or just like caused you to like reflect on your self-care? Uh, Well, I did love Lucy McBath, who Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, but Janae Ingram, who's uh, another one of the um, national organizers for the Women's March, mentioned travel Mm. as self-care. And I loved that because I had never really thought of travel as a form of self-care, but there is something really sort of magical about stepping out of the setting that you're used to and just physically removing yourself from a lot of those everyday stressors expanding your mind of what else exists in the world, seeing a new place. 
yeah. So I love I that. Like that. And it's, you know, often when I think of travel, I think like stress because I do a lot of it sometimes and it feels very stressful. <laughs> but at the same time, there is this different energy that comes to you when you are traveling and it's opening your mind in a, in a different way that I think is self-care and self-exploratory. Uh, and that's actually like a really beautiful thing. Well, I just want to point out some things in the book that I really, really loved. And like, thank you so much for including. There was the feminist mixtape. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You had Fighter by Christina Aguilera in there. And I was like, yes. Everyone needs a little pick-me-up. You need to like dance it out. Absolutely. One of my biggest forms of self-care is just singing as loudly as I can in my car and just jamming out so hard. Like just Oh, it feels so good. Like, why is it so satisfying? I don't, I don't know. even know. It's just, it's like, the, it I feel like it's such a pure form of expression, you know? Like, you just don't care. You're like, I don't care from off key. Like, I'm just going to sing this note. Just go for it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then you also had a list of, like, empowering movies to watch. And that, I felt, was super helpful. Like, it's it helps make it a book that you can, like, go back to and, like, refer to. Like, not just one that you read once and then put down, put down but that you can, like, go back to and that the book is like kind of a a uh a type of self-care in a way well I appreciate that because that is exactly how I was intending it so it's a real relief to me to hear that that is how you said yes, absolutely <laughs> and I also really loved you had this whole section about these different organizations like you talked about earlier that there are already people doing all this work in fighting you know for all of us as a whole and is there any any resources specifically that you want to make people aware of maybe it's just a quick tip of someplace they can go to get more involved in their communities or yeah I mean I organized the list of organizations at the end, sort of my topic area, so that people can really go with the thing or start with the thing that they feel most passionate about. I mean, for me, it's all of stuff around reproductive mm-hmm. rights or um, sexual violence. And so, you know, a few organizations that I love, like End Rape on Campus, I think is amazing. Um, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, obviously, I'm, I think Planned Parenthood is a really really great organization mm-hmm. um and the national latina institute for reproductive health does really important yeah. work so those are four that i'd start yeah. with but you know it's hard to even pick because there are so many people who have been doing such incredible work for just yeah. decades and that's why i needed a whole book <laughs> yes <for it>. yes <laughs> well and that's why i think it's so important to like the way you had it organized out in the book was just like very clear to go through and didn't feel very overwhelming like i know if i go and try to look at resources online it's just it feels like a lot sometimes but you also you had like little prompts in there for like you know reaching out to senators like through email through phone and that i just I was like, that's amazing. amazing oh, I'm so glad. I think, yeah. Oh, I, I love that. I love that. I'm just like so <laughs> proud of you. Like I remember calling into the Here to Make Friends podcast for the first time. It was like, I think it was the week of when my two-on-one aired and I was in like such a deep, dark place. And I remember just laying in bed and talking to you guys and find, like I bawled my eyes out immediately after I got off the phone with you guys. But during our conversation, it was the first time, you know, I had been sucked into like the internet trolls on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else. They were finding ways to contact me and hearing you guys, you know, recap that and talk about it on 
the podcast made me just feel so relieved and like validated and just like connected and just so understood. And then I was just like, you guys are amazing and I love you as a human and just feel so proud to like know you as a person. And this is where I'm really thankful that Bachelor has introduced me to like wonderful people like you. So (laughs) I'm honestly just so proud of you like as a friend and as a guest on the pod, you know, it's been really, really great. Feeling is so mutual. I mean, I I always joke about it. Like we started, Claire and I started this podcast here to make friends. And then suddenly we we realized a couple years in, we've gained these really beautiful, genuine friendships from something that I think a lot of people would look at and be like, oh, how silly and frivolous mm-hmm. is that thing? You talk about that silly reality TV show that a bunch of ladies yeah. watch. And yet you know, you can build connections anywhere. And I think that's such, such a good, such a good lesson for for anyone to take away. Like you will find allies and friends in in the most unexpected of places. And no joke, I have, (laughs) I have a picture framed. I've had this since I was in middle school of a cat in a, a brown paper bag on the street. And he's like peeking out and there's a cat in front, like looking in at him. And it says friends can be found in the most unexpected places. (laughs) (laughs) So Amazing. yeah, <laughs> on board there. Um, but no, really, thank you so much for writing this book. And thank you so much for coming on the pod. It has been so amazing to know you and to talk about your amazing book here. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to continue listening to your podcast. It's Aww, very thank good. You. <laughs> well, you guys can get Emma's book, A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance on Amazon. I will have links for ordering in the episode descriptions that you guys can check out you guys can find emma gray on instagram at emma lady rose you guys can also find emma and the here to make friends podcast on instagram at here to make friends pod thanks for having me thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of let's talk about it you guys can send us emails at ask.letstalkaboutit at gmail.com you can also find the pod on instagram at let's talk about it underscore podcast thanks so much talk to you next time This podcast is brought to you by Wave Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows, including the Brain Candy Podcast, I Don't Get It, Babes and Babies, Coffee Convos, and Let's Talk About It. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.